Welcome back, dreamers, for another serving of the Dolp and Dreams podcast. As we wrap up season one, we're going to be going back to the beginning. I'm told it's a very good place to start. Now, today's guest, Ashley Griffin, and I are taking a deep dive into the film that started it all, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Walt Disney Productions was mostly known for producing animated shorts for Silly Symphony series and Mickey Mouse. Walt hoped that by expanding the studio, they would gain prestige and increase studio revenues. So in 1934, the studio began development of the picture, and in June of 1934, an article from the New York Times, Walt announced to the world the development of their first feature under the Walt Disney Studio. It was estimated to cost about 250000 which was 10 times the budget of any Silly Symphony short before it. Like many things that Walt did, nothing like this had ever been done before. This would be the first full-length cell animated feature in motion picture history. Both Walt's business partner and brother Roy and Walt's wife Lillian attempted to talk him out of it, while most of the movie industry just kind of joked calling it Disney's folly. But Walt was a man not easily moved, and when he set his mind on something, he did it. So development moved forward with the picture. Though I feel it needs to be noted that that estimated cost of 250000 actually cost the studio of a total of $1,484,422.74, which was a massive sum for any picture in 1937. It would be about $26,865,823.73 today. Just to put that into comparison, Frozen 2 cost about $150 million to make, while Tangled cost $250. As development began, for Walt, the main attraction of this film was actually the Seven Dwarfs, because of all of their poss- possibilities for screeness and gags. This movie development is hard to follow because like any first, the road to screen was messy, full of a lot of missteps and development along the way, and also, it was 1934, no one was keeping a record of how they were making this movie. The development ultimately came out of notes and production meetings. Many of these meetings were centered around the dwarves and how they were to be introduced because Walt and his team felt that this was the key to the story. Richard Creighton, Larry Moyer, Albert Herter, Ted Sears, and Pinto Kovig were in these meetings continually bringing new character notes to pick through. Walt wanted the dwarves, who are unnamed in the original story, to have their own personalities and names. They developed this list of like 50 names that were also personality traits that included Jumpy, Deffy, Dizzy, Wheezy, Baldy, Nifty, Lazy, Puffy, Tubby, and Burpee before they literally picked them down one by one like they're doing a draft until seven were left. And these were the seven that we came to know and love. Now, Creedon brought this 21-page packet list of notes on character so they could develop this picture. And a lot of this outlined details from the Grimm story that were necessary, which... If you've read that Grimm story, it's actually not long and there's not much detail. And they kind of were figuring out what they needed to expand, how they were going to tell the story and make it feature length. It was originally decided to keep the three attempts at Snow White's life that led the king, queen 
to kidnap the prince. This was a new uh, thing and keep him in the dungeon, which had to lead Snow to come back. It was this weird thing because of True Love's kiss and blah, blah, blah. Because um, it was decided that if it was just the poison comb, well, the dwarves could take that out. So it was one of those things that it worked up to finally, like, the prince saved her once. And so the queen kidnapped him and kept him in the dungeon. It's it's a mess. Um, there are lots of notes on this at the internet, so I just kind of picked through what we could for you all. The original version of the queen, who's one of my favorite Disney villains, was a fatty, batty, self-centered woman. And the prince was this, like, cartoonish clown pretty much sent to serenade the princess. You can easily see archetypes from the early animated shorts from all of the studios, as well as vaudeville characters in these archetypes. The movie overall was supposed to be much more comical in nature than what actually ended up on film, but that is really what concerned Walt. He needed to be taken seriously because no one wanted to like, back this idea of a movie that's animated that adults and kids would see. So the development drifted away from focus on the dwarves to focus on Snow White, which to me just seems easy. And so this led to actually a ton of scenes with the dwarves cut. Now, concept artist Albert Herder would be the primary authority on design for the film, which I think is really interesting wording, but he had final approval of all designs. And while there were other people that were brought in to convey what I can only describe as like a European or Germanic animation style, he still like got the final approval. And so this is background characters, you know, the castles, the building, the richness of the concept of the world. Think about it as like a production designer, a scenic designer. And so around this time, an animator named Art Babbitt was hired by Disney. Well, so he was hired in 1932. This is about 1934. And Babbitt started a class with seven of his colleagues that all worked in the same office of him, where they would get together and do an art class. But there was no teacher. There was a model. And they each kind of worked in their own styles and learned from each other's styles. Now, these classes continued to grow and included so many other artists and more and more people just started joining them. But it was getting expensive and Babbitt was offering this in his own home. So Walt stepped in and offered to sponsor the classes with the supplies if they agreed to meet at Disney Studios. Now, the history of this kind of drops off in kind of the involvement, but Walt does a lot of things on purpose. So I can obviously see why he's getting these people. But a lot of these students in these classes were versed in their craft, but not the craft of animation and drawing because most of them were newspaper cartoonists. So they just did, you know, small things. And this is before newspapers really were having a lot of pictures. So like magazines were still hand drawn, those kinds of things. And so Walt ultimately ended up hiring a lot of these men with no training, mindly all, mostly men, um, to be the cartoonist for Snow White. And Walt encouraged his staff to, at the same time, to see as, as many films as possible, to be inspired and taken so they could see literally what the forefront of their art form was. Now, I think it's really interesting. Snow White is actually quite scary in many ways, even by today's standards. And so a lot of the direct influences came from Nosferatu, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which I think if you're really watching through even not the scariest moments, the shadows and the light, all of this comes from those moments of inspiration from these films. 
the film premiered on December 21st of 1937 at the Carthay Circle Theater in Los Angeles. Many of those in attendance were there to ultimately see Walt fail. But as the movie came to its end, the audience, which included like Marlena Dietrich and Judy Garland and James Lawton, they leapt to their feet in explosive applause. Sixties later, the dwarves were on the cover of Time magazine, and the New York Times was quoted saying, Thank you, Mr. Disney. Now, following a very, very successful run at Radio City Music Hall in New York, as well as a theater in, in Miami, RKO put the picture in general release on February 4th of 1938, and it was a massive blockbuster success. And it stayed in theaters for almost seven months, also hitting Australia, Canada, and England. In total revenue, Snow White at the time grossed $7,846,000 in international box office, earning a profit, which is unheard of if you know film, actually earning and turning a profit on a movie of, of $380,000. Now, let's put this into perspective. In 2020, that means its international box office was actually $141,619,210.28, roughly, with a profit of $6,858,947.22. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Now, Snow White would be re-released in 1944, 1952, 1958, 1967, 1975, 83, 87, and 1993. In 1993, Snow White became the first film scanned into the digital files, manipulated and recorded back onto film as part of this restoration process. It has a lifetime gross with inflation of $418 million. It was finally released for home video in 1994, and by 1995 it had sold over two, I'm sorry folks, 24 million VHS and grossed over 430 million in home sales. Now that does not also include Blu-ray and DVD, which would come in the next 20 years. The film was a tremendous critical success, with many reviewers hailing it as a genuine work of art and recommended it for both children and adults. And although film histories often state that the animation of the human characters were criticized, most recent scholarship finds that most reviewers praise the realistic style of the human animation, with several stating that the audiences almost forgot that they were watching animated humans instead of real ones. At the 11th Academy Awards, the film won an Academy Honorary Award for Walt Disney as a significant screen innovation which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field. Disney received a full-size Oscar statuette and seven miniature ones, and it was presented to him by Shirley Temple. The film was also nominated in the year that it was released, so I believe two years prior, for Best Musical Score. Now, Someday My Prince Will Come has also been a jazz standard since the 1930s and has been performed by more artists than we can list. Now, Snow White's success led to Disney moving ahead with feature film productions. Walt Disney used all of the profits from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to finance a $4.5 million studio in Burbank, the location of which Walt Disney Studios is located at to this day. They did get a new animation studio at one point, which we've covered in numerous 
uh, past episodes. Now, within two years, the studio completed Pinocchio and Fantasia, and would go on to work on many more. By today's standards, we expect oversaturation of the market when it comes to merchandise from Disney. But this was the first time that they merchandised in such a way. And so following the film's release, a number of Snow White themed merchandise were sold, including hat stalls, garden seeds, glasses. The film's merchandise generated sales of eight million in one year, in one or two years. Like that is insane. And that's an equivalence of over a hundred million adjusted for inflation today. Now in the 2000s, Disney Toon Studios began development of a computer animated prequel to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs titled The Seven Dwarfs. Director Mark Disa and screenwriter Evan Spamopoulos pitched a story expanding how the dwarves met and how the evil queen killed Snow White's father and took the throne. Now, according to Disa, Toon Disney management changed the prequel to center around Dopey and how he lost his voice witnessing the death of his mother which is so dark, y'all. But after Disney purchased Pixar in 2006, John Lasseter, Toon Disney, and their new creative heads decided to kill the sequel. We'll be right back after this. Hey, you splendid living construct of human delightfulness. Thanks for listening and supporting the Certain POV Network. It's your bestest buddy in the whole wide world, Pat Edwards from the Let's Rewatch podcast. You might have heard an ad earlier in the year of me talking about an upcoming 5th edition D&D campaign book I co-wrote called The Red Opera. Super quick refresher. The Red Opera is based on the album and stage show of the same name by the band Dia Morte. It takes place within a mystical and chaotic city run by warlocks in a far-off northern tundra. Not only is the book entirely filled with original settings, monsters, encounters, and characters, but we also have two original new playable species and two new warlock subclasses. We've also forged a partnership with the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame and the Budapest Symphonic Scoring Orchestra to create an entire suite of new music to accompany each chapter via QR code. Well, guess what? If you're hearing this, the Kickstarter is live. That's right. So please consider clicking the special link in the show notes and peruse the many amazing reward tiers we have to offer. We have custom dice, mini figurines of the four main characters, a leather-bound version of the book, and even an option to get a special extra adventure written featuring you as a character. Come on! Thanks for taking a moment away from this phenomenal certain POV show to listen to me, you wonderful amalgamation of organic excellence. I hope you'll check out the Red Opera and consider joining me on this new adventure. Welcome back, dreamers. I could not do once with this guest and not bring her back again this season because we needed to talk the OG. I love her, you love her. Ashley Griffin, welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you back. Now, you and I have been discussing doing this since you did Little Mermaid as our second yeah, episode. Yeah. And we're rounding out the seat. We are rounding out the um the episodes now for season one. I actually originally had you as the last episode of season one. Yeah. But you've got some cool things happening, which we will get to at the end of the show mm-hmm. that I'm super excited about everybody knowing. Thank you. But I also couldn't imagine doing the first season and us not doing the absolute first movie to ever enter the Disney vault. The the one that set everything into motion that, you know, it set up every princess. It set up everything for the, the studio. Mm-hmm. And so today we are talking Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yay! Uh, so just really quick for anybody that might not have listened to the Little Mermaid episode. And to that, I say, why haven't you yet? <laughs> Pause this one. Go back and listen. Yeah. 
because Ashley's got a lot of good things to say. Thank you. But we're going to jump in. So give us just a real quick recap of who you are and why you're bringing Snow White to us today. Sure. Um, So I am a Broadway writer and performer. Um, I do a lot of other things too, but that's probably what I'm most well known for. Um, Everything I've ever done just went out of my head. (laughs) 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 Like literally. Um, So... I would say what makes, well, I have a website, ashleygriffinofficial.com, but I would say what makes me specifically targeted for this podcast and this episode specifically is I am a bit of an expert on all things fairy tale. Um, I know an extraordinary amount about um, the history of the 1800s and the origin, well, when I say origins, I mean like the written origins of the fairy tales. Um, I'm a total Disney girl. Um, and, and, uh, it affects a lot of my work. I actually, the thing that we're going to talk about later specifically that has to do with this is I have a play called snow that played off Broadway was nominated for a bunch of awards, um, is about to make its UK debut and it is called snow. And it is a very, very, very dark piece that deals with, um, the importance of storytelling through the lens of, Snow White, and it follows three disparate storylines that all revolve around Snow White. Um, the first is the historically accurate story of the Grimm brothers and how they collected the fairy tales. Um, the second is about a Victorian theatrical family and how the stories became sort of deliberately changed and how that affected the culture. And then the third is about a modern day girl living with her abusive mother who is um, living in sort of a disnified world of how you look at fairy tales and how that's affected her life. Um, and, and so as, as a result, I especially know an extraordinary amount about Snow White. I have a lot of thoughts about Snow White and I think it's a, it's a film that is really extraordinary, change, literally changed the world and it changed cinema. And I Mm -hmm. feel like right now we tend to look down on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of bothers me. And so I think it's time to kind of bring it out and have a little conversation. I agree. Well, and I'm also going to preface this with... Disney fans are particularly guilty of always hating the next thing that came out and hating the thing before it, but having one or two things that they're like, it will never be as good as that. Mm-hmm. And so where it's, we t- you and I both talk about nostalgia a lot, yeah. and how it's good and how it's bad and how it affects how we view all entertainment, yeah. all art, all aspects of our life. For sure. And like you've said, Snow White literally broke ground, yeah. uh, being the first animated full-length feature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was convincing people in a time where they were like, oh, watching a cartoon that long will literally rot your brain out. Yeah. Adults didn't want to do it. And so this was a huge risk mm-hmm. um, to do this kind of thing. And again, we talked pre-show that it's hard not to look at things, especially a movie. Again, this is 1937. Yeah. So like... Uh, you know, this is almost a hundred years old at this point, which is wild to think about. Right. Um, so like 82 years old. Um, and so it's hard to not look at this with a modern lens, but I think if we can't appreciate why this was revolutionary, no one's ever going to appreciate it. But it's also one of those, like, I believe, I remember my sister watching this a lot when the VHS of this was released in the 90s, mm-hmm. when it was finally pulled out of the Disney vault. Yeah. Um, because this was one that was put in the Disney vault forever and said would never, ever, <laughs> ever get a home video release. Right. <laughs> because they made they just made so much money out of re-releasing it in theaters like every 10 years. Yeah. And that's why even today it has made so much, I mean, 
in the grand scheme of things, it's made $418 million in its entire life. And that doesn't include the exchange rate of right. the money it made in rentals pre-1980 when money kind of shifted Absolutely. and inflated and, and things. And so, um, but yeah, this is... This is a fun one to talk about because, again, I even found myself going uh, last night when I was rewatching it and going, mm, I don't love that about this. But I appreciate it because I have enough knowledge of yeah. film at the time to know. Like Snow's voice, I, I, I appreciate her. It's something that I find just a little grating. But if you know anything about film well, and entertainment at the time, that's what all women sounded well, also, like. That was the, but do you know the story about the actress who was hired to do that voice? Um, yes. But tell so us, her, tell everyone at home. So her father was um, either like a voice teacher or a musical director or something. And she was in, I, th- I believe, her early 20s. Um, and mm-hmm. somebody from the Disney Studios called her dad and said, hey, because Snow White technically is supposed to be 14. So they were originally mm-hmm. looking for a little girl. And so they called him and said, do you know a little girl with a good voice who can, you know, do this operetta style singing who would be good? And she was li- like being a teenager and listening in on the other line. And she started mm-hmm. doing what she thought was a little girl's voice and like, oh, I can do it. I can, I can be your voice. And they're like, oh, OK, she sounds good. Let's use her. So, <laughs> so what was a com? And she was like a trained opera singer. So it was a combination right. of a. That's how people sounded at the time. I mean, listen to Billy Burke in in The Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz. B. Mm-hmm. It's an early twenties girl doing what she thinks a child sounds like in the nineteen thirties, combined mm-hmm. with a character who's primarily defined by having an operetta style to her voice. So yeah. that's three very specific things that influenced the yeah. sound of Snow White's voice. And and also, I think a lot of people look at the musical scores of Disney movies, especially the princess movies, yeah. and they because most people have the heaviest connection to the Mankin, yeah, Ashman, yeah. and Schwartz Rice music. The revivals, yeah. And s- the revivals, yeah. And so this is also after, so we have to also think, this is before the American musical solidified as an art form. Right. Like, you know, this is one of those things that this is back even when stage musicals, we're still getting the Ziegfeld Follies. We're getting yeah. shows where the songs don't actually progress the plot. Although so they why, even are, they are progressing the plot more than, say, like Oliver and Company, because it, it yes. was intrinsically in, because musical theater was a big cultural thing then, so it was a little more intrinsic, yes. but... I think, you know, operetta has fallen out of fashion, and I think that we need to really view this through an operetta lens. I mean, this Snow White bears far closer resemblance to Babes in Toyland than it Mm -hmm. does to a narrative book musical. And and like you said, there had never—I mean, I think people— when when such a big artistic milestone has been passed, we don't look at it as so such a milestone anymore. But what mm-hmm. you said that this was the very first full length animated film. I, th- I think it was called Walt's Folly. He had to take out multiple loans on this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think we need to remember because the idea of cartoons being able to do everything that every other storytelling medium can do, we take for granted now. I mean, the fact that yeah. like Wally can exist, we take for granted now. But at the time, mm-hmm. we need to remember what cartoons were and cartoons were short and funny and they were primarily based on physical Mm -hmm. comedy like Charlie Chaplin Mm -hmm. and Buster Keaton and Mm -hmm. if you see like what Parallel Exit in New York City does now that's that's what it was based Mm -hmm. on so 
I mean, people literally were like, you can't get people to care about a cartoon. The idea that people would care about Snow White was ridiculous. The, the, The mere fact that we care, that we cry that people cry you know with with the dwarves when she's in the glass coffin Mm -hmm. that we're terrified of the witch people didn't think you could be terrified of an animated character so Mm -hmm. we're going from the silly symphonies to doing Mm -hmm. babes in toyland animated and i think we need to understand how revolutionary that was and a lot of other operatic type things that were i mean if we look at other filmatic things that were in the same style, which would be more in the twenties of literally like the mustache twirling villain tying the ingenue Mm -hmm. to the railroad tracks, Mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't really exist anymore. We don't really pull that out anymore. But the difference was that Snow White and Disney became a brand unlike anything else in the world. And therefore we're having a conversation about Snow White because she's still a brand that is very much present. You go to Disneyland and you see Snow White and they sell merchandise and, and they, and they do all of those things. You know, you're not going to universal studios and seeing the mustache twirling villain and the girl on the railroad tracks walking around for autographs, you know? And so I think that it's very unusual to have something like that continue into modern day. And I think we Mm -hmm. do need to view it with a historical context and the wonderful things that it does and the extraordinary things that it did. You know, I, I completely agree. And this is also the first example of seeing Disney put their, what I would call now a genre stamp onto mm-hmm. a story. Yeah. Um, because again, this is also the first time they've adapted a story this large. Yep. Um, and so, you know, anybody that you've got the people who love the Disney version and they know the Disney version of the stories. And you have people mm-hmm. uh, like yourself yeah. who knows the Grimm stories yeah. and people. Well, I will say people like me that know the Grimm stories and then people like yourself who knows the stories before the Grimm yeah. stories. Yeah. And, you know, the history of the Grimm stories. And so I think all of those things are things that we also need to look at and consider yes. because this is also ultimately a study and adaptation mm-hmm. um, in a way of how do you do things the first time? Yeah. Um, and, you know, even looking at when we talk about musical theater of I look at Oklahoma in the same way because that was a play called Green Grows the yeah. Lack. And then how did they and I only bring up that one most notably because it was the first one that used song, scene and choreography yeah. as part of the, the well, you know that. But yeah. I'm explaining that to everyone Well, no, at home. of course. I mean, Oklahoma so, is the yeah. when when if you take any musical theater history class and they say, what was the most influential musical that was ever written? It's either Showboat or Oklahoma is what they're looking for, for the, for the same reasons. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of those, well, again, I look at those now in a different lens of going, we can still look at them and study them, but it's, you know, culturally we have to look at them different, but I think this one's even different from that because again, like you said, I can still walk well, not at the current moment, but, Pre-March 15th, I could still walk into Epcot Mm -hmm. and meet Snow White six times a day with her tiny bird voice and the the, uh, preservation of the brand. And this is also when we see that hashtag Disney brand kind of emerge because we'd had the Mickey shorts, but this was starting to set up what they would build a, a... a monolith on. Absolutely. And he, Walt would have no idea that this would become huge because like you said, this almost killed Walt. It almost yeah. killed Disney Animation. And Walt almost killed the company several many times because oh, yeah. that was just the man that Walt was. But, Absolutely. Um, so let's jump in. Um, 
Uh, so I know you read fairy tales as a child. Yeah. And you watched Disney movies as a child. Yep. So um, what was it about Snow that snuck out for you? Like her story, both the Grimm and the, the Disney, because they are different. Yeah, well, something that I'll throw out there is the Disney movies were what initiated my love of fairy tales because I'm, I'm a total mm-hmm. Hermione Granger and I love reading. And so what I would do is like when I would you know, like see Snow White for the first time or something, I would be like, oh, I want to go to the library and I want to get the story. So I go to the library and I go to the fairy tale section and suddenly I'm like, wait a minute, there's like a million and one adaptations of this. And I would check them all out and I'd read them all. And that was really instrumental to realizing the sort of, I guess, you know, at like three years old, the Joseph Campbell-ness of storytelling mm-hmm. about that there's an essence to this tale that is universal, but there are specifics that are unique to every culture. And it really drove my love of um, looking at different versions and looking at the history of fairy tales and how they developed and and all that. Um, and also at the same time, there, there was, when I was growing up, there was a big wave of fairy tale stuff. Um, I grew up watching fairy tale theater, which if you hadn't, haven't seen, I adore Shirley DeVal's fairy tale theater. They're all on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And they did a version of Snow White that their adaptations were actually very accurate to the Grimm stories. And they had Elizabeth McGovern as snow and freaking Vanessa Redgrave as the evil queen, terrifying and genius. Then you also had the canon movie tale. So I was growing up exposed to a lot of different versions, but with Mm -hmm. the Disney version specifically, um, I think the hag left the strongest impression on me. She's terrifying. But, I mean, I love the dwarves. I think they're adorable. But what the thing that's always fascinated me the most about Snow White as a fairy tale in general is the relationship between Snow and the queen. Because when you look at the pantheon of fairy tales, Snow White breaks a lot of the tropes. For example, it's the only fairy tale where where being nice to an old woman is not going to bring you a reward. Any right. other fairy tale, if Snow had not let the hag into the house, she would have like been cursed forever. Um, mm-hmm. It's also one of the only fairy tales where the villain has a very specific personal grudge against the heroine. I mean, you look at something like mm-hmm. Sleeping Beauty and the dark fairy, it's sort of like, hey, Aurora, I'm sorry, I don't actually have a beef with you, but your parents are kind of jerks, so like, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, But Snow White, it's very personal. I also found it fascinating, especially in the Disney version where you really, you don't get a lot of three-dimensional development, especially with the evil queen. I mean, you really don't Mm -hmm. with the evil queen. You have somebody whose primary motivation is being the fairest in the land, and the first thing she does is disguise herself as the ugliest woman on earth to kill this girl. Which to mm-hmm. me was always this very odd, interesting juxtaposition that then killing her became more important than the reason that she hated her in the first place. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I was a very, you know, <laughs> intellectual child. Um, and so those were a lot of the things that I was thinking about. But I think there's more to the to the Disney version than meets the eye. And especially going mm-hmm. back and rewatching it. Um one of the things I'd love to throw out is, you know, in, in our current culture, um, having fleshed out three-dimensional heroines, you know, with, with, all, with all this stuff, it's clearly very important and wonderful, and we've made wonderful strides. But the fact that a, a, a piece of art was made before certain strides were made in our culture, I think mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it wasn't progressive. 
Um, a lot yes. of people aren't necessarily familiar with the original versions of the stories. The original Grimm story, first of all, I'd like to point out that Snow White was seven years old. Um, the queen, um, you know, d- d- does all the, does all the usual things. Um, Disney also was responsible for the most part for inventing the trope of true love's kiss. True love's kiss does not really exist in mm-hmm. fairy tales pre Disney. It does in a couple more so in like the Perot versions, but it's not, it's not a grim staple. And actually what we think of as true love's kiss that we kind of dismiss a little bit as being, you know, ancient and, and not great was actually, I think, a feminist step forward because the original version of the story was Snow and the Prince never met. Snow was in the glass coffin. This prince happens by, sees this dead girl, thinks she's so gorgeous that he can't live without seeing her every day and orders his people to cart her glass coffin back to the castle so he can, like, <laughs> leer at this dead girl every day. He doesn't... And and what happens is the, the coffin... Somebody drops the coffin by accident. It dislodges the piece of apple in her throat, and that's what wakes her up. Um, so it's this weird, creepy, like, kidnappy prince who's, like, gonna, like, leer at this kid. Um, and so when you look at the Disney version and have the fact that they've met previously, that they have this connection... And that it's their love that's able to break the spell is actually a big step forward from what the original was, which is still also different from the true original, which the Grimm brothers wouldn't even publish, in which there was no prince. It was her father that went that started lusting after her at seven years old. If you look at the story, she's seven years old. It was her biological mother, not her stepmother. Dad finds her in the woods, wakes her up, kills the mother, and marries Snow White at seven years old, was the true original version. That's why in further adaptations, you don't have any idea what happened to the dad because the Grimm brothers just like took him out of the story with no explanation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So some things that Disney did... I think actually were steps forward. If you look at Snow White's I Want song, her I Want song is I'm wishing and the lyrics are for the one I love to find me. She doesn't say it, mm-hmm. it's a romantic love. She doesn't say it's a boyfriend. This is a, a, a kid, you know, a, a teenager, you know, who's, you know, starting to, you know, turn into an adult who has no father, has no one who cares about her. That person could be anybody. And the person who shows up Mm -hmm. as the prince and her reaction is to run away. I would like to point that out. Her response (laughs) to this strange guy showing up is not like, oh, the one. It's to run away. And through, Mm -hmm. through a short moment, which I think is, you know, fine. It's an hour and a half movie. They have a lot of story to get through. He woos her. She likes him. The first time any mention of a romantic love comes in is when she sings Someday My Prince Will Come, which is three quarters of the way through the movie after she's already met this guy. And it's the idea that she'll be rescued. So I think that we 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 need to really look at what's actually being done in these movies and for the context it was in and the year that it was in. Um, Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's in the guise of operetta. I mean, in all honesty, Snow and the Prince's relationship gets more development than Mary Mary um, does in um, Babes in Toyland. Yeah. And that that was, it was a convention of the time. And they were dealing mm-hmm. more with the fact of, oh, oh, and, and that Snow White gets 
her reward through being good and kind. She meets the Mm -hmm. prince. That's not where the story ends. With the huntsman, the reason that the huntsman doesn't kill her is because she's being kind to the bluebird and saves the bluebird's Mm -hmm. life. The reason that she is taken to the dwarf's cottage is because that same bluebird rallies all the animals to help her because she was kind and that it's her kindness that earns her a reward. Also, and I address this in Mm -hmm. my play, to me, as weird child that I was, the Disney movie Snow White was always a metaphor for death because you have, which, which those fairy tales were metaphors for more spiritual Mm -hmm. things. You have a girl who dies, has a resurrection, but then says goodbye to all the dwarves. Like she's never going to see them again and goes with the prince to a literal castle in the clouds. I mean, to me, Mm -hmm. it was a metaphor for dying and going to heaven. And I think that it's meant to be viewed allegorically. It's meant to be viewed with hyper-realism. I mean, the castle in the clouds is stylization. It's not meant to be a commentary on reality. Right. Um, and so I think that it's really important to keep those things in mind when we're when we're watching it. So that's that's my giant spiel about modernization of the story. Well, well it's also we have to look at the world at the time. Yes. We're at the end of the Great Depression. So people are desperate for anything that give them hope, yes. give them joy, give them opportunity give them magic Mm -hmm. and that's why we saw a boom in theater in new york at this time because it was inexpensive it was accessible and people were able to come see it as a as a distraction we would see it in world war ii Mm -hmm. we saw it during world war one this is one of those things that people are going to depart from what's happening in their life and if they can have a little hope that at the end of the day something good is going to happen yeah and and the Um, goal was to get to the gags i mean in all honesty looking at the point of animation i mean they were taking a risk with can we make the queen scary they were taking a risk Mm -hmm. of can we get people to invest in snow white and a love story but they knew that where they were on solid ground was with the gags And that's why Mm -hmm. like three quarters of this film is the dwarves and they Mm -hmm. enlisted a lot of physical comedians um, and dancers to Mm -hmm. come in and do things. It's all based in physical comedy. And that's the meat and potatoes of what this film is, because they knew that that's what they could count on. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that's that's sort of important to keep in mind as well and how revolutionary everything around it was and how much it influenced the culture. I mean, when you look at the Mm -hmm. wizard of Oz, they were originally going to cast Gail Sondergaard as the wicked witch, of the West. And if you look at early makeup tests, she was going to be a beautiful recreation of the evil queen. Nobody had ever done a beautiful evil witch before. And it changed Mm -hmm. the zeitgeist. Um, you know, it, it really it really went on to influence a lot of things that are embedded in our culture nowadays. Well, and I think that's why it's so interesting that she is the ha- like she is so desperately tied with this idea of being the most beautiful woman mm-hmm. in the land. Um, but then she becomes the most ugly woman yep. because that is truly in her character and her heart. That is what she actually looks like, yeah. because I there was a there is a version of this. 
Oh, God, I forget where it existed at some point. It was probably made for TV thing that she it was one of those like, what if she had actually been able to kill Snow White? Mm. And she goes and goes, who is the fairest one in the land? And the mirror goes, um, another woman. And he goes, because of your heart, you shall never be truly fair. Oh, that's great. And it's one of those. Th- and I was yeah. like, which is also very like late 80s, early 90s after school special right. version of this story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is one of those things because we do talk about that, that like, that's the thing, um, you know, because you and I met working for the Green Girl. Yep. You know, there are so many things that when we make that character who's supposed to be so, he's supposed to be evil and unattainable and unconnected yeah. to, but you make them beautiful. Yeah. That's the thing I love about female Disney villains. And this is something they continue doing. Because even mm. though Cruella is unusual looking, and the only one I'd say that's like super not attractive is like Madame Mim and Madame Medusa. But typically the Disney women but Madame Mim, are still when she, very, she changes guises and one of those become, is the gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. She's the, the, the gorgeous one. Yeah. And it's even like Ursula. She's big, but she's, but she's sexy. She is sexy. Yeah, she's so sexy yeah. when you have mother Gothel who is again, mother Gothel is just another version of this, this right. character in very many ways, but that's yeah. who, you know, that's who the witch was in, yeah. in that story. But you know, it's one of those things that, she created the archetype, but again, it was that idea of of flipping how we saw those stories also mm-hmm. because, again, it's going to be easier to sell um, a picture, even an animated picture, of beautiful people mm-hmm. than of, of the stereotypically ugly people. And what's interesting, because you talk about the physical comedy, mm-hmm. a lot of this movie was made by using references yeah. and having live action people and also like animating over top of photography that had been taken, um, which is there's a lot, there was a great, it was on the VHS of this in the 90s. There was a featurette that was about a half an hour of how they animated Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you can, I'll, I'll have to share that to our social media. But like, once I watch that, I've never been able to watch this movie yeah. the same because there are certain moments that like, you see when the prince throws his leg over the horse, yeah. they were doing it over the ph- photography in the video because, or the, um, yeah. the motion capture because they hadn't done anything that advanced with technology before in mm-hmm. the way of animating, yeah. which is another way to just also look at this because one, this movie looks like art of the time. It looks like mm-hmm. a storybook. It looks, and this also started that beautiful trend of the opening yes. of the book at the beginning of the thing, yeah. which right now, if you go on Shop Disney, you can get a gilded version of this book that is a giant, heavy journal. It's like twenty nine ninety nine, yeah. but they've recreated this. I might have the one gold. that's a case for um, Snow White No Cards. I might, I might own that. Oh, so, I love that. Yeah. Um, um, but I was at the I was at the Disney store a couple weeks ago because I was running errands yeah. and they had it in the window great. and I went. It's beautiful. Oh, if I was a bigger Snow White person, I would pick it's it. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, and I, I also want to do a shout out to John Townsend, who is literally literally the man who wrote the book on clowning and physical comedy, and he has a whole mm-hmm. wonderful blog where he talks about. Um, the dancers who were physical comedians who they hired mm-hmm. to do this kind of dancing and they're sort of the unsung heroes of Disney animation and things like if you watch the um, the ballroom scene in Cinderella with Cinderella and the Prince dancing mm-hmm. um, it's the exact same animation as the end of Sleeping Beauty with Aurora and Philip dancing they literally yep. drew over the Cinderella drawing mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah but what, what, what you were saying about um, beauty and the way people look um 
I think on the flip side of that, because, um, you know, one of the criticisms sometimes that Disney and fairy tales get is, oh, it's all about, you know, like the beautiful young girl and then like the ugly villain. And, you know, she turns into a hag and stuff. And Mm -hmm. this is, again, what a nerd I am. I would highly recommend everyone check out J.R.R. Tolkien, who obviously wrote Lord of the Rings, wrote a wonderful essay called On Fairy Stories, um, which talks about why he thinks fairy tales are so important. And one of the things that he mentions and C.S. Lewis talks about too is fairy tales exist in a universe where what you were saying before, what what is in your heart is made physically manifest. So I think the attraction to it is, is not this idea, which is something that I never got as a child. I don't know any children who've gotten it. I know it's a worry, yeah. but I honestly, I don't know any kids who specifically think that it, I'm sure there can be. And if they do, that's something to be discouraged, but I never saw it as about like a pretty thin girl and then an ugly person. Mm-hmm. I saw it as this is a universe where if your heart is good that is manifest on the outside of you. And if your heart is evil and ugly, that is manifest on the outside of you. And in most fairy tales, mm-hmm. by the end of it, that is made physically manifest. You know, the, the queen starts out beautiful, but her heart is made manifest. And by the end, she is ugly. And I don't think, I think, again, we as a culture sometimes have lost our ability to read and watch metaphorically. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think that some of these things are meant to be seen metaphorically and wouldn't ideally, we all want to live in a world where the way things appear on the outside is a manifestation of what they're like on the inside. Like, I think there's part of us that all feel that that's the way the world should work. And so it Mm -hmm. gives us, um, a universe to look at things through that, through that guys. And, you know, maybe the way that beauty is represented needs to be looked at, but I think that it's meant to have a a metaphoric reading, um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to be taken as literal. So that's one of the other things that I, I think is interesting about fairy tales and the reading of fairy tales. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's jump into what, so what we think, uh, is super effective. And again, I want, we're, we're going to put a little historian hats on yeah. with this as well. Um, and so, but I think if there are two people that can look at this super subjectively, it is you and it is Yay. I. So let's do this. Yeah. Um, what are some things that just stand out for you that are just some really effective storytelling, effective film moments, um, even beyond it being cartoon? What are some of those moments for um, you? The relationship between Snow and the Dwarves um, is mm-hmm. something that was completely invented by Disney. Um, and I know that they spent a really long time trying to figure that out because originally they were going to have the dwarves be more like Huey, Dewey, and Louie where they were all like clones of each other. And mm-hmm. then they decided to make them all individuals. And I think that one of the things that's so charming is the dwarves have – they all have kind of like child person, – differing child personalities Like we've Mm -hmm. all seen each of those people on the schoolyard and the way that snow interacts with them is so darling and endearing and sweet and charming. And it is, that's nowhere in any version that came before. That's completely the invention Mm -hmm. of Disney and his animators. You can see the work of, you know, um, Ollie Johnson and all those, um, Oh my gosh, it's Ollie. And who, why can't I remember the other is it Jack and Ollie? The Nine Old Men. Yeah, the Nine Old Men. Uh, I'm going to look yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just watched yeah. the documentary about them. Um, oh, my gosh. It, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name them because they need to be named. Um, although not all of them were there for it. but um, No. 
Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson are who I'm specifically thinking mm-hmm. of, and you can see their work all in it, and Les Clark and Mark Davis and Milk Hall and Ward Kimball and Eric Larson and John Lonsonberry and Wolfgang, Wolfgang Reitherman. That's a great name. Um, mm-hmm. But you can see their personalities and whatnot all over it. So I think that the dwarves are incredibly effective. I think the hag is stunning. I mean, I remember being mm-hmm. terrified of her, like way more so than other things that you think would be terrifying to children in films. Um, terrifying. And especially when you think of the technology that they had, they didn't have their like, um, gosh, what's it called? They used it with later films where they would put different, um, plates of animation at different physical levels from each other and then shoot down oh, to get yes. depth of frame. Mm-hmm. They didn't mm-hmm. have that yet. Any depth of frame they had was all through their hand drawing. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the things that stand out the most as being so effective are the hag um, and the relationship between Snow and the dwarves and just the artistry of the animation. I mean, the transformation scene reminds me of something in a Miyazaki film, um, like mm-hmm. like the tale of Princess Kaguya with the like the smearing of the colors and all that. Yeah. And um, so the the level of artistry. Those are those are probably the biggest three things that stand out to me. It's it's also reminiscent to me of the kind of transformations that we be utilized in early horror. Like yeah. I reference American Werewolf, American Werewolf in London. That transformation it is so similar to this, and this is so like I was just sitting there. I always marvel at the transformation scene yeah. because it's I you know people forget that like Dali and Walt were friends. And so like you can see a lot like Walt had his finger on the pulse Mm -hmm. of so much of America, so much of art of entertainment. The man was quiet, but he watched, he knew things and he was so intelligent. Oh yeah. Um, And so, you know, you can see the influence also of like, what was making the good cereals of the time, like the Tarzan cereals and, and those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Of, they were pulling in those elements of what would keep people. But also, this is one of those where, so I watched it twice this week. And one time I like sat and just watched it. And then the other time yeah. I like watched it and played Animal Crossing. Yeah. And it's one of those that this also you can take it in as a radio drama. Yeah. They have a lot of those things of what makes it. Um, the score is wonderful. It is underscored beautifully. There's really great sound design. Mm-hmm. And again, these were all when things were done practically while they were recording. Yeah. The idea of a live Foley art. Yeah. There's just so much. And for me, I think the key thing is how emotive each of these characters yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Now, there are times where you can tell because the queen is very much the beauty of the time. Yes. Now, the film looks fashion-wise, makeup-wise, it looks like the 1930s. Yeah. Um, but that is iconically something that was very infamous until we get to the of uh, Barry Lyndon in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And now while the women's hair in Barry Lyndon is very um because that's Stanley Kubrick, which is also really interesting yeah. to think about. It's one of the first films that is so heavily researched to be a period piece. Right. And before that, a lot of it was this idea of what is the 1930s version of medieval, yeah. medieval sometime. Yeah. And so, you <laughs> it know, it was Marlena Dietrich and Betty Boop. I mean, that's what was yes, on the screen. Abs- that's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. And, but it also explains the length of Snow White's dress and the like, and her hair, of the sleeve. And, yeah. And her hair and even the queen's like shroud, like that very severe shroud. It's very Gloria Swanson. Oh, yeah. Like they're yeah. just, 
you know, it's it's uh, especially that like they're the queen is a silent film star. Yeah. Like she, you know, and it's you can tell that they pulled because there are a few moments where like you can tell the makeup on the actress of the reference was so heavy and dark around the eye mm-hmm. because it was the 30s that it's the one the queen when she's beautiful sometimes we don't get the depth of eye yeah. because you could tell the reference image was just so dark around yeah. the eye but like that's just a little thing yeah. but the all of the dwarves i think yeah. it's why people love the dwarves more than anyone else yeah. they're so emotive mm-hmm. and snow has the the lovely little red apple cheeks which is again beauty of the time yeah. but it works so lovely for her yeah. but they're just so emotive and there's so much sunshine and brightness and the animals don't need to speak for you to know exactly what the animals are saying exactly. and this is something that disney would specialize in always oh yeah like always 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 yeah. and you know i mean now we have animal friends because of uh plush sales mm-hmm. <laughs> but um yeah, like, uh, you know, so it's just what I think for me, it's beautiful. It looks like a storybook yeah. come to life, which is very important for me. Yeah. But I think it's the emotiveness. Also, I love that the prince is in literally five minutes of the I movie. Know. That's my favorite part, too. Um, uh, and yeah, also, so, can we have a minute for the fact that the prince really doesn't rescue her? She runs aw- nope. She runs away from the huntsman. She's rescued mm-hmm. in the forest by the animals because she was kind to them. And it's also mm-hmm. charming little moments that I think we forget. Like, you know, her running through the forest, A, is horrifying. I mean, there's a moment where she, like, falls in a ravine. Oh, my God. She falls in the ravine and yes. she's holding on the thing. And the trees and everything. And then she's crying. And then the lights, the, the sun comes out. And she has that moment of, like, I, I'm so ashamed of myself. I, you know, I was, um, I got myself all frightened and I was acting silly um, but now I see that, you know, that the sun's out and I was being silly and, you know, we're going to make the best of it. Like she's very mm-hmm. resilient. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something that sometimes gets forgotten. She doesn't like clean up for the yeah. dwarves because she's like submissive. She's like, oh, I'm in a strange house. Well, maybe they'll let me stay if I show that I'm like, you know, here to be right. helpful. Um, right. And she's just I also think we need to really throw some respect to the music. I mean, there was a time when hi ho did not exist. Like there was like right. someone wrote that and the music is charming and just, and the bravery mm-hmm. of the film. I mean, the idea that an animated character was going to sit down on a chair and for a minute and 30 seconds was going to sing a ballad. Like, mm-hmm. like what? Like, the, like mm-hmm. th- that was, that was insane. And Disney made mm-hmm. it work and made it beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, the the this is and this is a wonderful theater moment of what happens off screen can never be is or like if you show something awful on screen, it's never as terrible as we can imagine it ourselves. Yep. And again, because it's animated, they weren't going to show her falling and getting squished. But the use of the two vultures is so, because something I did not catch until this, they literally, you watch their pupils, she falls, and then their heads go, poof, when the rock hits her. And you go, it's so subtle. And then they both smile, and then they launch off. And it's so... Well, and the fact that those vultures appear earlier, they they're they're mm-hmm. stand they're in the tree outside of the dwarves' cottage when the 
queen shows up with the apple and they have the same mm-hmm. look towards Snow White. Like they're not discriminating. Mm-hmm. They have no moral associations mm-hmm. in this film. And it, that's part yeah. of what's terrifying. And also what you're saying in terms of the direction, you don't see Snow take a bite and then collapse. You see mm-hmm. Snow holding the apple cut to the vultures, like cut back to the queen laughing. And then you just see her hand fall and the apple roll out of it. I mean, the direction will, is genius. And I will argue that's one of the 10 most iconic mm-hmm. Disney images of all time. Yep. One, it's so iconic that they used it in Enchanted. Mm-hmm. It is so iconic that they used that moment. Also, the, yeah. then the poison apple would, again, become its own, you know, trope. It's its own thing yeah. because... I, if I'm not mistaken, in the Grimm's, she comes to her three times Honestly, with three different items, correct? That, was the, that is, I think, one of the smartest adaptation decisions that Disney made because one of the things that always bothered me about the Grimm version is, I'm sorry, I love Snow White, but she is the dumbest heroine of any fairy tale dumbest. ever. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a little better when you think about that she's seven years old in the original story, but it's like... The dwarves are like even at even at fourteen. I know, like, but but it's like the dwarves no. are the dwarves are like your stepmother is going to try to kill you. Don't let anyone in. She then proceeds mm-hmm. to let a strange woman in the house three separate times with a bodice, mm-hmm. a comb, and then the apple. And by the time you get to the apple, you're like, I'm sorry, you kind of had it coming. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and so, I mean, they pr- probably partially did it for time, but it makes so mm-hmm. it, whereas like with Sleeping Beauty, I always felt more sympathy because it's like she has no warning. It's one time it's a spinning wheel and like, oh, no, this terrible thing happened. Mm-hmm. I think it makes us much more empathetic to Snow White that her um, kindness is manipulated in this one instance. Mm-hmm. Um. And, mm-hmm. and you understand why she's tricked and you're like, no, 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 don't eat the apple. Whereas with the three times by that point, you're like, oh, I mean, you, you, you got it coming, sweetheart. <laughs> like, yeah. It also raises the stakes yeah. way more. Like it raises the stakes for the queen because she gets messy. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing is like she pushes this on her because she thinks she has no other way around. Right. This. Um and, you know, it is interesting because it is an 83-minute picture, and it doesn't feel like it's 83 no. minutes. Because, actually, typical Disney movies now are either a little longer or a little shorter because yeah. we got to the ones in the 80s and some of the ones in the 2000s that are about 72 minutes, 78 minutes. Yeah. Um, but, again, you brought up the point earlier of we we get those iconic moments. Because, again, like the dancing moment where they're all kind of partying, having yeah. a good time would be rotoscoped again for years in Robin Hood. They Mm -hmm. use it again. Like it's, you know, it's one of these moments of, you know, those become one because they want you to become invested and they want you to understand the, um, because the whole point about that true love saves the day. It's another moment of like Lottie and princess and the frog. It's not, it's not romantic love. It's the love of of friendship. It's love of sisterhood. The, the dwarves aren't in love with her. They just love her. They care for her. Um, cause we aren't quite sure how long she's been there. Um, but it's also not important. Right. Time in this movie is not quite important. Um, and, and, but, but also uh, how they just go with the convention that we're not going to give you like a life story fleshed out backstory for Mm -hmm. everything it's i mean the movie opens and they're like once upon a time there was a princess named snow white her stepmother hated her Mm -hmm. this is where they are now and we're starting in the middle of the story and you just you just go with the convention of it um Mm -hmm. side note of other iconic moments i 
sometimes forget about it, but it's, I love it when, when snow runs away from the prince in the first scene and she's on the balcony and he's there and she sends a dove down to him and the dove like stands in for snow white and the dove blushes and then gives him a little peck on the (laughs) cheek and then flies away. I'm like, that's just, it's so so clever. It's so clever. And they Mm -hmm. really deal with snow white very much in the way of like, you're a teenager and you fall in love with your high school sweetheart for the first time and it's fine and it's cute. And it's, I don't know. I think, I think it's really charming and, and lovely. Mm hmm. Yeah. The the one the one thing I want to know: How did she run in those wooden clogs? She jumps on those wooden clogs and she runs up those steps. Yeah, I and I was know. like, and she just mopped too. How'd you do that, she Mama? Just exactly. Too. How'd you do that, girl? <laughs> you were gonna make a mess. You're gonna sprawl up those steps yeah. again. That's just me being catty. <laughs> um, so I have to ask because you know we do know there are a lot of changes. Yeah. But again, I read a version of the Grimm's earlier, and just because it was an online version, it was like eight minutes to read this thing. It didn't take right. long. Is there anything? Just knowing the text, knowing the source material, yeah. the version of that version of Snow, no other version. Is there anything else you would have liked to see them do at that point um, using our, our best 1939, right. brain, 1938 I brain. mean, in all honesty, at that, at that moment in time, I don't think so. There are things mm-hmm. that I like to have in my Snow White adaptations in general, but looking through the lens of what Walt Disney was doing, I don't necessarily think that they would be appropriate for that film. Um, like for example, mm-hmm. I am, I really think that the relationship between snow and the queen before she runs out in the forest mm-hmm. is important and an interesting one to delve into. There's a really interesting film called snow white, a tale of terror with Sigourney Weaver as the queen that mm-hmm. jumps the shark like completely Um, It tries to be like all historical about it and it turns into like a very weird horror movie. But one of the things it does is it really excavates what that relationship was. I think that's interesting. There's also an addendum to the story where the queen dies in a very different way um, that Mm -hmm. I don't think would be appropriate for a Disney film, probably for a Disney film in general, but for then um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about the original story I don't I don't think there's anything in the original story that I would want in a 1930s Disney adaptation. I think they mm-hmm. kind of mined the things that were most appropriate for them and expanded yep. on it. Um, yep. Was there anything for you that you would have liked? No, I honestly, this movie, I think for the time specifically, yeah. I think it ties in a sweet little red bow yeah. to, you know, because she's in a little red bow. <laughs> um, but I think, I think it's very cute. I think it is. It is a legendary picture, and I think we need to think about it from a 1938 lens. And I also think it's a really – this is a good talking point because I don't think you need to be knowledgeable about film as a parent or as a person to, like, have a discussion about older films and why there are three princess films prior to Little Mermaid and how different they are and why there was a 20, you know, 30 year jump between Ariel and Aurora Mm -hmm. and those things of, of look, also looking at snow, looking at Cinderella, looking at Aurora, Mm -hmm. those movies changed each time because time changed, the company changed and the people watching it changed. And then 89 was so different. The world was literally the looking glass version of the world in, you know, 1955, 1959. So... 
you know, I think it's one of those things that I think for this time, I wouldn't change anything. And honestly, I don't like us going back and changing too much now because we're in a world of live action remakes now. This is set no, to yeah. get a Disney live action remake. Oh, and I hope they don't. I hope they treat it like they did Cinderella because I really liked the Cinderella yeah. live action remake because yeah. they treated it. They treated it like they were just making a live action movie of the cartoon when the cartoon came right. out. So I would kind of love them to do this through the lens of a 1938 version of it and, yeah. and don't because there are certain versions. Now I would like us to jump in because you brought yeah. up Snow White Tale of Terror yes. and this is another one of those. It's one of the most adapted stories. Mm-hmm. I think there's always a version of oh, the Kristen Stewart and Disney, version. Oh, well no, I'm, I'm just saying that this, they have redone <laughs> yeah. so, like the world has used Snow White in so many ways, including Disney wrote a Broadway musical that played Radio in the seventies. There's a great documentary about musical. that on YouTube. Go watch it. It's fascinating. Yep. And it was a charming and so, version. And it only ran like two weeks, four weeks, something like that. But it that. saved Radio City and Music Hall. And then it toured and came back. It did. Yeah. And I think it was also Disney's kind of first foyer into making a Broadway style musical because they'd done the Disney lives. Yeah. And this was when they were this is when they were delving into the meet and greet costumes yeah, and things, yeah. which um Defunct Land and Yasu World do great. They do great recaps of like all of Dopey throughout the year from literally the Carthay Circle premiere was the first time that they had meet and greet. Yeah. Um Dwarves and Snow. All the way up to their newest meet and greets that you can, well, again, not right now, but when everything reopens, um, they're at Whispering Canyon in um, Wilderness Lodge, uh, and you can meet the Evil Queen, Snow, and the Dwarves. Um, But, so this is such an adapted story, not just by Disney, because that's the thing. Disney doesn't own Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. They own their version of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. But um, Disney has done mm-hmm. Snow White again. So Once Upon a Time was on ABC for many years. Yes. Oh, I have so um, many things so many things about Once Upon a Time. <laughs> and I'm actually, like, overall I thought it was, like, it's a clusterfuck, <laughs> but God, it's good bad TV. It's great I want to say, the first, with the exception of one or two episodes, the first season of Once Upon a Time for me was one of the best seasons of television I've ever seen in my life. And Jane Espenson's episode, The Price of Gold, is possibly the best episode of television I think I've ever seen in terms of it being really good and combining with my own sensibilities. After season one, I I don't really want to talk about that because I don't have a lot of... It gets messy. It gets messy. But the first season... but also after that, there were because they started, I believe it was season three. They went to the two the two season arcs where we get yeah. one arc the first half of the season. Yeah. And it's also because ABC and Disney do this thing where they're going to cancel you at any moment. Right. And so they wanted to be prepared to. Right. But I, I have to say, I love Snow and Charming in yeah. that so much. Yeah. Josh Dallas, Jennifer Goodwin. Yeah. Because, again, they did a thing where they gave and oh, um, also just Lana Perilla yes. as Regina. And I'm sorry, can we have a shout out oh. also to Robert Carlyle as Rumpelstiltskin? Because like... Oh, yes. I mean... Yes. They're... Oh. they're re- okay, really, if we're talking about it, the three standouts from that show yeah. from start to finish are Jennifer Goodwin, Lana Perilla, and Robert oh, Carlyle. Yeah. They are the three... And, sta- and, oh, the, and the woman who played, who played Baby Granny. Snow. The girl who played Baby Snow. What was her name? Oh, she's she so good. She was so good. Um, 
who looks just exactly like Jennifer Exactly like her. She was um, so good. But also the woman that plays Granny. Aww. So good. That woman is so well, here's, wonderful. She's here's so something I want to say about adaptation in general because it's a, it's a bit mm-hmm. of an area that I live in. I do it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Here's one thing I also want to say. I'm going to start by saying this about animation. Um, animation can do things as a medium that no other medium can. And I think it's right. Howard Ashman talked a lot about it when he went to Disney, but it's one of the reasons I think that there's such a big tie between physical comedy and animation. There are certain things that mm-hmm. you can only do in those two mediums. It's why for me, the only really effective adaptation of Alice in Wonderland I've ever seen on film is Disney's animated one, because mm-hmm. it's the only way that you can pair a nonsensical world with enough dramatic through line to have like a, a story mm-hmm. It is is because mm-hmm. you have the world of animation where you can do things that you can't in any other medium. And I think that that's one of the things, especially with Snow White, again, coming out of animation, coming out of that physical comedy influence, when you start talking about adapting it into a different medium, I start getting very concerned about trying to recreate the animated film in live action because that's when I yep. think you're going to get into some serious issues because if you have mm-hmm. – and again, on stage as a musical, I think it's also a little different because there's there's a level of stylization. But if you're talking about mm-hmm. a non-stylized film – Lindsay Ellis has a whole wonderful essay talking about stylization on film. Um, but if you're talking about a non-stylized, very realistic film – you either have to seriously adapt the story you're telling to be a hyper-realistic, mm-hmm. serious story that delves more into the psychology and whatnot, um, or you're going to have a bit of a mess on your hands. Because if you imagine mm-hmm. the Disney animated movie exactly the same but with real people doing it, it suddenly becomes ridiculous and offensive in places. and It becomes community theater. Yeah. Like, in the worst kind of way. Yeah, Um, because the dwarves can act the way they do and can physically do the things they do because they're kind of in a magical world. I mean, if we just look Mm -hmm. at, I mean, I'm a dancer and I do, you know, physical, I'm a physical actor. And when you look at the things that the cartoon characters are doing, which are so charming and lovely and the way they're falling into like the little trough of water, the way they're Mm -hmm. dancing on shoulders... It works because in animation, everybody on that screen is a slightly magical being that's not really existing within the laws of the real world. The second you take Mm -hmm. it to within the laws of the real world, you have to then deal with things of like, okay, so we're now dealing with real dwarves, which means we're dealing with real Mm -hmm. little people. So what's their backstory? What's their history? How are Mm -hmm. we going to tell this in a... Um, in a non-offensive way, because it's very easy to be offensive yeah. with that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. are we going to give Snow White the same voice? Because again, it works when it's coming out of a Betty Boop type figure that's not real. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work the same way when it's coming out of a real human. So, and I think we're also at a point where it seems almost tone deaf to have a Snow White who is like the nineteen. If we were remaking it yeah. now, who is like the nineteen thirty eight? Because it's like so. I'm going to bring up the Dora the Explorer movie. I they loved did it. it. I and it was it. it was so good yeah. and it's parody to a point of showing that character growing yeah. of 
you know that work then, but she's a character that works longer, yeah. and that was but about. But it's also you know, based uh, in Latinx. it's based in reality. I mean that right. I mean it's funny because I sort of when I think of the Dora live action, I compare two things in my head, and one is the actual movie, which I thought was great, but one was the parody mm-hmm. trailer that came out in like 2013. <sighs> Um, the, yep. For funny or die, and that went into oh, a yeah. major satirical place, um, mm-hmm. and that works for a trailer. Um, but if mm-hmm. you were going to make a full length movie, you, I mean, and it's it still works as parody, and there's wonderful parody moments in it. But those mm-hmm. are also stylized but grounded characters. Like that's Adora, mm-hmm. who is mm-hmm. unique and has some issues, but is living in the real world. You know. Right. Well, and everybody around her is deeply grounded in reality, yes. and that's why it was important to bring Diego yeah. back. Uh, yeah. <coughs> this has become the Door of the Explorer podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's great. <laughs> it's great. But I don't know. I just, I, I feel like if you're going to adapt something, and this is where I have a big issue with why Disney does, I feel like a lot, and I, I love Disney, but I feel like a lot of times Disney <coughs> does things for, you know, the, the stockholders numbers or mm-hmm. whatnot. And if you're going to adapt something, mm-hmm. there needs to be a reason why you're adapting it. Now, I would love a stylized, beautiful Annie Leibovitz photo shoot looking live action adaptation mm-hmm. of Snow White. But if you're going to mm-hmm. do it, then you're going to need to root it more in reality um, and have and have yeah. a reason, have a reason why you're doing it. Um, and I think that mm-hmm. I, I did like Cinderella. Um, I, th- I thought that that was the most effective of the live action um Disney adaptations. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that sometimes I I think that Disney's brand is important. I remember Walt Disney said something where when he went to see um, To Kill a Mockingbird, he said, like, I I wish this is the kind of movie that we could. This is the kind of movie I've always wanted to make. And I can't really with what the brand is. So there is value in Mm -hmm. the brand of Disney. And I think that that needs to be maintained. I actually think they've gone very off brand Mm -hmm. in some of their um, conglomeration of things. But I would hope that they would also realize that that brand was built on experimentation and boldness. Mm -hmm. And the heart of the Disney brand, I think, is in family entertainment that gives you hope in the world. Um, Like when when the pandemic really hit and we were a couple I mean, I'm still feeling really depressed about it. But when we were a couple months in and like I, I was feeling like no hope, I found myself watching all the old Haley Mills movies and they mm-hmm. just, they made me happy because I, I know some people talk about it, think things like that being saccharine or whatnot, but what the movies that Disney was really involved with did, and I think Howard Ashman had the same thing, was they came from a sincere place of believing that at the end of the day, people were good and that there was hope mm-hmm. in the world from a sincere mm-hmm. place. And that's why his Pollyanna worked and other adaptations have been very saccharine. Mm-hmm. And I think that Disney has kind of lost sight of that a little bit. And I think that the thing that makes Disney so unique and special to me and is one of the reasons that I love Snow White so much is it's a it's a it's a um, pairing of bold, unique, pushing the boundaries of the art form with a perspective of since a belief in sincere goodness in the world. And I feel like that's been missing from a lot of things that Disney has been making. 
And also, we don't have to grit everything up. No. Not everything has to be gritty and real and hard. No. So, like, that's so one of my favorite all time movies is Pete's Dragon. Yes. It is. The original it is Pete's campy. Dragon. It is. Yes. yes. Well, and that's the thing is that's an example of we could have gotten a sequel where it is Elliot going to another child. Yeah. That would have been great. Or, or Elliot coming back to Pete. Or Pete's kids. Do you or know something what I would love? To, I would love to see that it's it that that Pete's grown up and has kids of his own, and one day one of his kids starts talking about a dragon named Elliot, but Pete can't necessarily yep. see him. And how do you yep. then deal with that? I would that would right. be beautiful. Well, because even like Helen Reddy is still alive, mm. so like why couldn't literally you could like most of that cast oh. is still alive. So even if you didn't bring back the actor who is playing Pete, because right. I don't believe he acted anymore, but like bring back Helen Reddy even for that he and Nora have yes. like there was just no connection to it and. Like, while the design of Elliot was cool in a 20, whatever year that was, 20, 2015, yeah. you didn't need to deviate from no. it so much. And that's one of those things that, like, Disney just doesn't need to, you know, but they did the new, the third Witch Mountain movie, which was tonally just like the original yeah. two. It was just in 2009 or whatever right. it was. And so that made sense. But, you know, it's, there is something, it was something they were able to capture in the Lindsay Lohan parent trap. Yeah. And it had the same, it had the same energy that the Haley Mills parent trap did, which I have to tell you, I watched Moon Spinners <gasps> for the first time Isn't last month. Isn't it lovely? Month. It's so lovely and it doesn't really, it's not bad until like the last 10 no. minutes because it just gets messy right. and it's too long. Yeah. But like the the British boy is a dreamboat. Yeah. Uh, Haley Mills is not the best actress, but she is so, she is the same charm that Hugh Grant has yeah. as a British actor. They have like that same thing. Yeah. Um, I just have to say, there's a girl on TikTok who is a dead ringer for oh, Haley wow. Mills that recreates scenes from <gasps> Twilight as Haley Mills. Oh, it's so good. I want to see Haley Mills as Bella They're, so much. Oh well, that's what they do. They do the scene where where it's the um, you're you're unspeakably fast. Yeah. <laughs> what am I? Vampire. <laughs> and it's, it's and they do it in this black and white green, and she has the like little bit of the bump yeah. from Moon Spinners with like or the, yeah, the she has the yeah. that darn cat hair with oh it's it's so perfect. It's great. Um, Oh, my gosh. Now, one... That, okay, so just as we're talking about adaptation, one that I actually think would be really great for them to remake in the same style and heart mm. is In Search of Castaways. Mm. That, to me, I think... One, yeah. it's still a great movie, but that's one that you can modernize just a little yeah. and have the right cast, and I think it'd be really yeah. great. But um, So let's talk about... We're going to transition, because I think we said a lot about Disney Snow. <laughs> it's great. Um, yeah, everybody watch it again. Think, watch it again, because I feel like we all think... I would encourage We all think we know what it, it is, yeah. but... Watch it yeah. again, and yeah. yeah, it's really charming. And then if you're at Disneyland, go ride Snow White's Scary Adventure, because it's legitimately spooky yeah. in many places. Yeah. Like, I didn't expect to be spooked, but she turns around, she's the hack, and I went, oh, <laughs> I was expecting it. It still spooked me a little. <laughs> so let's talk about you live in a realm of adaptation. I it's, do. It's part, of where, it's a part of where a lot of your art is. It's where you are. So let's talk about your cool. um, adaptation of Snow. Thank you. Because our audience is actually able to buy tickets yeah. to watch a production that will be digital, but it is being recorded live. Yes. yes. Well, it's um, live. -ish. Well, no, it is actually live. Like if you buy tickets, you will oh, be great. watching a live broadcast of it. And it's from the safety of your yes. home. And um, I we're, we're 
uh, I, there's things about it that I can't announce yet, but there's people in our cast. Great, that's fine. There's pe- Ugh, I, I want to announce it so bad. There's people in our cast that you're just going to die when you see who's in this. I'm so honored. Well, but Well, I assume that by the time this comes out in a couple weeks, because this is, this is releasing uh, two weeks before um, your presentation is October 2nd. October yes? 2nd at 7.30 p.m. UK time. So, so that's like 1 p.m. our time, um, right? So... So okay, so are they six or eight I believe, hours? I believe Eastern Standard Time is five hours before UK time, and then Pacific time is three hours before that. So Pacific time so is so it'll be like two two EST, and then like eleven something eleven. Thirty. Yeah, that's great. That's a brunch time. Yeah. Get your and it's only it's only ten pounds, which I did the money today. Works out to be like twelve fifty. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is nothing. Honestly, yeah. don't 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 do your uh, don't do your Uber Eats of Starbucks today. You don't need a fourteen dollar <laughs> uh, pumpkin spice cold brew. Um, you do. Just go pick it's it up. It's a cool. It's but tell us about tell I, us tell us what well, you can. Yeah. About well, your I, I love this piece. Um, there's more information about it if you go to my website specifically, but it played off Broadway. It had development at Playwrights Horizons. Um, it got nominated for a bunch of awards. This is officially its UK debut, um, but it's being done with actors from Los Angeles, Broadway actors, and UK actors. Um, it is being broadcast live, but it's it's not just like a Zoom. It's not a Zoom reading. Like It is a rehearsed piece where we have designers and we have stage managers that are coordinating things and whatnot. Um, and it is a very, very, very dark look at the importance of storytelling viewed through the lens of the fairy tale Snow White and how the change in that fairy tale reflects our sort of changing views and relationships towards storytelling as a culture. Um, it's structured similarly to the cloud, um, to cloud Atlas and the hours. It's three disparate storylines that all revolve around Snow White. It's a cast of about mm-hmm. six actors who all play parallel archetypes in each storyline. Um, so as I mentioned before, one storyline is the historically accurate story of the Grimm brothers and their transcription of the tales and their editing of the tales. Um, one is a Victorian theatrical family whose lives start to mirror Snow White. And the Victorian era was also the time when fairy tales were no longer really adult fair and they were relegated to the nursery. Mm-hmm. And that's when they deliberately started putting happy ending morals on the end of them and changing them. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is a modern day girl living with her abusive mother um, who has sort of used stories to um, cope with what has gone on in her life. And she is obviously living in a post Disney world. Um, right. it, it is dark. Um, you know, trigger warnings. There is, um, sexual assault that happens. There is death that happens. Um, there's abuse that happens. Um, and, and those disclaimers are on our, our logo and stuff as well, but it does not shy away from why the stories were originally told the original heart of the stories. It, I mean, mm-hmm. if you talk about gritty, it gets gritty, but I think that they're, it deals with hope and the nature of hope and how do we continue to hope. Um, I like it a lot. Um, I'm very, very proud of it. It's very close and dear to my heart. Um, it's a full length one act, so there's no intermission in it. And you can get tickets by going to www.southdevonplayers.com. So that's S-O-U-T-H-D-E-V-O-N-P-L-A-Y-E-R-S.com. And if you click on box office, there's a link to get tickets. Um, Please come check it out. I think it's I think it's really cool. And um, as much as I love the Disney version, this is sort of a different look at the fairy tale and its impact. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and yeah, I'm really excited to get to delve Great. back into it. And and I will be in it as well, that. so you can see Yay. me in the flesh. That'll be exciting. You can see me in the flesh. <laughs> Well, and that'll be really good. Um, so all of that info will be on our social media on release day as well. Thank you so much. Um, I encourage everybody to get those tickets. It'll be really interesting because I know a lot of people are missing theater yes, right now. Yes, yes. I know Disney, Disney tapped that Hamilton bug just a little, and so a lot of people are more actively. And I'm, you know what I'm also hoping is that Americans can see that the rest of the world is starting to get theater in person again. Yeah. Kind of. They're starting to get it back. And so maybe if everybody wears their masks and washes their hands. um, Because you don't need to go to Disney World right now, friends. Just stay home. Oh, and side note, one of the fun fun things in the show is, you know, we were talking about sort of operetta and that stylization is, Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting working on this with a UK um, theater company because one of the things that happens in the Victorian storyline is they're in rehearsals for a panto of Snow White. And most Americans don't know what a panto is. It comes from the word mm-hmm. pantomime. Oh, I love, it's, oh, yeah, I love pantos. It's, They're so It's great. a type of sort of music hall theater that um, is a mainstay of British theater that happens usually around the holidays. And it's very, like, highly stylized, campy, fun. And um, so, so you can sort of see a little bit of the theatrical origins of where a little yep. bit of that style comes from. The narrator is typically the panto dame who is a man yeah. in drag, and then the villain is also typically a man in drag. Not so much anymore. There's actually a company for anybody who wants to, the, the Christmas time is a great time to visit London, specifically in the UK. Uh, maybe not this year, um, but there's a large company that does a panto at the um, Palladium every year, oh. and I got to see them two years in a row. And there is nothing it's like so it. I actually fun. saw Snow. I actually saw Snow White with Don French, and so <gasps> as the evil queen, which was D. Oh my gosh. The joke, the joke about our, our panto is that the the same actor is playing the prince, like all the dwarves. Like it's like six cutouts and then him <laughs> and the hag. So he's like playing all these parts and That's is not so happy good. about it. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so Ashley, as we're wrapping up, if you had some inspiration or just some advice that you wish someone had told you when you started kind of writing and doing adaptation. Yeah. Cause I'm sure I know I have writers out there that are listening, people who want to adapt people that want to do those things. What are some things that you've just found as you worked through creating your sure. own things? What are some things that you wish somebody had told you? Oh my goodness. Um, that, Oh, Oh my goodness. Um, I know it's a big yeah. question. I know it's a big I question. I mean, first of all, it, if you're going to adapt something, it needs to be rooted in a deep love for the story that you're telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that's unique about fairy tales is there are millions of adapt. I mean, there were millions of adaptations thousands mm-hmm. of years ago. Um, so I would read everything that you possibly can about the piece that you want to adapt. If we're talking about fairy tales specifically, go and read literally every adaptation that's out there. There are versions of Mm -hmm. most fairy tales in every language, every culture. Even if you look in the Grimm brothers stories, the fairy tale, the juniper tree is very similar to snow white in a lot of ways. Um, And Start by, I mean, read about Joseph Campbell and start by looking at sort of what is the root of this story? What are what are the most bare bones elements that you cannot take away 
in order to still tell the story. But then you have to have a reason for excavating this piece. Like things that I, I mentioned it before, but things that fascinate me about Snow White are the relationship between Snow White and the Evil Queen. What was that relationship before the Evil Queen decided that Snow um, was a threat? Because in the original story, Snow's mother dies in childbirth and the father remarries less than a year later, which means that this is the only mother that Snow has ever known. And it also means that the Evil Queen, I'm guessing, was not jealous of a nine-month-old baby. Um, So what was their relationship like before that jealousy started? What triggered it? What would cause the evil queen to do that? Um, there, there are also historical bases potentially for, for Snow White. Um, Margareta von Waldeck, people think, was a basis for it. Um, there was a woman whose mother used a mirror that was made of silver that had mercury in it, and they think it made her go insane because of mercury poisoning. Um, what are the reasons that she behaves the way that she does? Um what world is she living in? What, why, you, you know, if, if it's also the other thing that fascinates me about Snow White is that the queen becomes the ruler of the land in no monarchical system, except for Russia, right. it, back in the day, would a wife become the queen? Snow should have become the queen. Right. So what on earth, right. what on earth allowed that to happen? Um, you know, what was it like for a woman living that? So, so sort of like all the questions that I throughout my life just really loved thinking about and didn't feel like I had an answer to, I wanted to answer those Mm -hmm. questions. So that's a lot of what propelled me into some of these adaptations, um, was what are the things that I feel like haven't been fully excavated, but don't do it just to do it. Um, do it because you have a reason behind it and start by, really familiarizing yourself with everything that's come before. Watch every adaptation, read every mm-hmm. adaptation, um, and then do it for the joy of it. Um, and that's that's why I really like doing it. So. I love yeah. that. Well, thanks for coming Thank on the show. Thank you for again. having me. I, I hope I get to come here. again. Of it's course. such a joy. Oh, you will. You will. You'll get to come Yay. again. Don't worry. <laughs> Think of me when you do Hocus oh, so just- Pocus because I love that movie. <laughs> Think of me. Uh, so, uh, just quick wrap up again. Yeah. Where can everyone find you online? Um, my website is ashleygriffinofficial.com, A S H L E Y G R I F F I N official.com. There's links to all my social media. Um, my Twitter and Instagram handles are at Ashley J. Griffin and at Ashley Griffin Official. Um, come follow me. Let's, let's chat about more fairy tales and keep listening to this wonderful podcast because. Maddie Ryan is brilliant and he's doing wonderful, wonderful things. And you can learn a lot about adaptation and storytelling and things from listening to him. So go subscribe to everything that he has because he's great. When was the last time you watched a Disney movie? No. When did you really watch one of the early movies? My name is Jen. I started rewatching every one of the Disney animated feature films recently. And after watching them with a modern eye, they made me say, Oof, right in the childhood. Join me every Monday to learn the history behind each of these movies. And then, after I talk about that and some trivia for that movie, I'll summarize and react my experience to watching it as a modern feminist. Every week you'll learn something, you'll laugh a little, and you'll realize that your Disney-steeped childhood was rife with hidden sexism, racism, classism, ableism, and more. It really will make you say, oof, right in the childhood. Hey. Oh, hey, Jeff. What's going on, guys? Oh, you know, talking about Superman. Oh, cool. I could talk about Superman. 
I could talk some more about Superman. We know. I'll bet a few people would want to get in on this. I'm down. You know it. That sounds like fun. I'll do it. Cool. Let's do it. We can call the show Men of Steel. And you can find it at CertainPOV.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Yay. Thank you for all of those who went to our Teespring and participated in Pride Summer. You made a huge difference. Now, don't forget to check out our Patreon, where only $2 a month can help you support the show. And just for our Patreon listeners, I'm releasing a special series about the Disney parks reopening during the global pandemic. And the first episode is available right now for our patrons on Patreon. I want to tell you about two new shows we have coming to certain POV. The first is Judging Book Covers, which is our new book podcast and they cover everything every genre it is so witty it is so much fun the hosts are amazing and you will absolutely love it and the second show is releasing this fall from hosts maddie limerick of the dole up and dreams podcast and rachel quirky shank of screen snark stay golden is the golden girls podcast I'm going to hold while you scream. Join your hosts for bi-weekly servings of cheesecake as they break down how Golden Girls broke down barriers and changed how people watched television. You can find both of these shows at CertainPOV.com and on your favorite podcast platform. As always, don't forget to subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and thoughtful review. We are so close to 50 reviews. If we could get to 100 by Christmas, it'd be amazing, and I will definitely do a free giveaway. We have a huge announcement coming for Season 2 and about the future of Dole Up in Dreams very, very soon. So please make sure you're following us on all social media to stay up to date. Now... Join us next time as I hit the high seas with our guest from Let's Rewatch Podcast, Ash Blodgett, as we take a deep dive into Pirates of the Caribbean and the Curse of the Black Pearl. <laughs> now may your days be filled with Dole Whip and dreams. CPOV. CertainPOV.com.